0: I'll give a couple away, but we, every single penny we, the Lord told us when we were writing this book, He told us that we were to dedicate every bit of profit to um, to a moral revolution. So we're not keeping any of the money for this. You guys let us ask and you shall receive, or something. All right. That's good. Well, let's pray and see what we're going to do. I had a whole message and then we started to worship and I changed the whole message. and I haven't decided if I'm going to preach them both at the same time. Preach the eternal gospel or just pray for people and forget it all. You know how that goes. So let's pray, all right? Okay, you're praying for me first. Okay, here we go. Ready? It's very simple prayer. What is it? Help. Help. That's good. Help. Have you ever read the, the, the prayers in the book of Nehemiah? That's my kind of praying. Like, remember me, Lord. Help. Hurry. Have you ever had, have you ever been in trouble that you, you couldn't even articulate something long, but you just knew, like, help would get her done? So, okay. Help Chris. Okay. Thank you. And Lord, we just pray that you'd help your people in Jesus name. Amen. All right. I wanted to talk to you about freedom and responsibility and um, how many of you know that there was two trees in the garden? I really feel like in fact, let me just read you this verse right here. Isaiah chapter 2 is becoming one of my very favorite sections of scripture. Isaiah chapter 2. Now it will come about in the last days. Everybody say the last days. That the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Man, this, is this good? And it says it's going to happen in the last days. And you know when the last days began? Yeah, Peter quoted Joel. and He said... In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit. So, And many people will come and say, Let us come to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And He will teach us concerning His ways. We will walk in His paths, for instruction will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations. Everybody say, Judge between nations. Judge between nations. He will render decisions... Between many peoples. Everybody say that. He will render decisions. Let's try that again. (laughs) He will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. I like that right there. And um, you know, I've taught a little bit on this verse, but um if you look at a commentary, most of your commentaries will put that in the millennium. And uh I just wonder what would happen if they're wrong. It would be a bummer if they're wrong. You know what I mean? If the Lord said, Hey, how come people how come nations were rising up against nation? And we said, well, weren't they supposed to? And the Lord said, no, that was for another day. Your day was they will never again learn war. Wouldn't it be a bummer to be in the right place in the wrong season, or the wrong place in the right season, or however you say that, screwed up. (laughs) Wouldn't it be wrong just to be messed up in the wrong season? But there's a couple of things I want to grab here, and it says he will... um, he will teach us concerning his ways. We will walk in his path, for instruction will come forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations, render decisions between many people. And the outcome of that is that they will hammer their swords into the plowshares, their spears into the pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn more. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, if it's all right if I just talk to you for a while, I don't know if I'm going to preach at all. I just might talk to you. I have some things that have been heavy on my heart, and I don't know if I can articulate them in a way that will really constitute a great message, but I think if I just say them to you, it might be just better. I have some, um, some some deep concerns. Bill shared some of the things that were going on this morning. How many of you were not here this morning? Man, Jesus, he was thinking about coming back this morning. Now I see why he didn't. You guys would be reading those books left behind. I'm only teasing, but I do want to encourage you to get the the CD from this morning. Um, it was it was a family time. Again, he didn't preach; he just shared about some things that are going on with the Lakeland Revival and and with Todd Bentley and how he's involved. and And uh, I don't I wouldn't even do it justice to repeat it. So. But if you didn't get that CD, oh, it's probably going to be on the podcast. Would it be on the podcast? Make sure you listen to the podcast. It's very important for our family. If you raised your hand and and you're part of our family, it would be be a requirement that you listen to that CD. So there's lots of different things going on. And here um, Isaiah says that um, there's coming a time, and he called it in the last days, when we'll teach the nations his ways. They'll go, let's go to... Let's go to the mountain of the Lord. He'll teach us his ways. He'll make decisions between many people, judge between nations, and the, um, and the result or the fruit of that, like we don't know exactly what that looks like when it says that he'll judge between nations and peoples, but we know that the fruit of it is that people stop fighting and start getting along. Not only people, but, but um, nations. Now, how many of you know that religion starts wars? There's very few wars um, that, have ever, that have ever happened on the planet that didn't have a great amount of impetus through religious belief systems and, and doctrinal kind of... Um, I, this is what I believe. I believe that religion starts wars and the kingdom stops them. I believe that what we're learning here... I said, this is Chris's opinion. You have a right to your own, and you can leave here being wrong. because I think the Holy Spirit may have told me this. <laughs> no, but sincerely, I believe that religion starts wars, but the kingdom stops wars and brings peace between people. Now, I know that's a broad statement, and, and I, I was reading last night, just in my reading in the book of Luke, and Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, and I'm going to set uh, you know, mother against daughter, and so on and so forth, and he's talking about the radical cultural shift of the kingdom coming, and people still live in an old paradigm. So I do understand there's more than one scripture in the Bible. But um, for the sake of, of where I believe that we're heading, I, I think it's important for us, if we're going to teach the world God's ways, it's kind of important that we know them. And my concern is, is that... Um, is that people don't, and I and I'm going to include myself in this because I feel like we we have to have a revelation of God's ways. I've been asking the Lord, so um, you know, for me it goes in seasons. Like I feel like I really know the Lord and I'm really close to the Lord. Um, and forgive me if this is way too transparent, but this is the way my life has been. I feel like I really know the Lord and I'm really close to the Lord, and I hear Him just constantly, and I mean almost minute by minute. And then I go through other seasons where it's kind of like, you know, where are you? And does anyone else's uh, relationship kind of go like that? And I'm like, um, you know, it, and it feels like God's looking for me, like, Adam, where are you? You know, and I've said this before, but if God can't find you, you are lost. And it's kind of that, that kind of thing. And, and, and I feel like, you know, I, I've been in this season where I've just been like, Lord, I need to understand your ways. I mean, I need to understand your ways. I need to understand not just what it says in, in the book, but I need to understand what it means and why you wrote it. And I, I, hope, I'm, I hope I'm speaking to somebody tonight. And, um, you know, there are several things that have struck me lately, and some of these things I've shared with you. There were two trees in the garden. I know that's like, oh, yeah, of course. Does it trouble you that God didn't childproof the garden? No, I mean, just think about it. I'm not being funny right now. I mean, I mean, he, he, gives, he gives people a choice. And he goes, good tree, bad tree. And then puts them in the garden. I mean, I would think, you know, I don't know about you, but the way that I think when my children are young is, I, I mean, I don't think this way when my children are young. I think... I think, like, if I were God, I would make it impossible to, like, make a bad decision. But that isn't the way of God. Did you realize that Jesus' first miracle in John, chapter 2, at Canaan, what Jesus made wine? No, no, that, that part you can agree with. But maybe the part that you need to do a little research, because I have done this, he made wine for people who were generally already drunk. Read it. I mean, the waiter in the original language says most people serve the good wine first, and after people are drunk, they serve the cheap wine. Jesus made wine for people who were drunk already. You know, I don't know if you're getting where I'm going right here, but you have a choice. God's created a world where you have a choice and where he oftentimes creates the choice. See, if we a lot of I watch a lot of um, churches and pastors, they don't understand the ways of God. And they try to try to total childproof their church. They try to create a culture where nothing can ever go wrong, and they think that they're helping people. I don't know what they think people are going to do when they walk out those doors, out of the crib, and into the real world. But they, de- they develop a-, a religious culture that doesn't allow there to have anything go wrong. And not only that, but to make matters worse, and this is my opinion, but they create a culture where if you do have something go wrong, there is so much peer pressure to come to church with a smile and a phony face. One of the most powerful things that, that ever happened to me, uh, I've shared this real recently, but I, I, this may be a repeat completely of what I, you know, leftovers are good. I like spaghetti the second day better than the first day. I came to a conference with Jack Hayford, that Jack Hayford put on at Bethel Church. Do you remember me sharing this, anyone? Good. That's good. Like being old and watching a movie you've seen twice. I came to a conference at, uh, that Jack Hayford put on at Bethel Church. It was in the old building. And I was a young man, probably 25, 26 years old. And, um, and Bill had invited me to come, and I was really privileged. I mean, Jack Hayford was one of my heroes. Anyone love Jack Hayford's teaching? Guy's amazing. I don't even know if he makes up those words, if they're in the dictionary. I tried to speak like Jack Hayford one time, and I was using words I had no idea what they meant. And when I got done, the people had no idea what I meant either. You know how you try to copy your hero? And so, Anyway, but we came to see Jack Hayford, and I was, like, on his tape, tape of the month. You know how they used to have, like, the tape of the month thing? I used to get his tapes, and I'd listen to him over and over, and, man, I was so moved by him. And here I am, a young man, and, we, the, you know, we were in the old Bethel Church. There's about 300 pastors and leaders there, and I was just privileged just to be there. And, and so, you know, Jack comes to the podium, and he opens his Bible, and he, and he starts to teach, and he stops, and he closes his Bible, and he says, you know, um, you know, that's not really what I want to do right now. And I'm like, you know, okay, so I wonder what's going to happen here. And he started sharing this story that so moved me. I was there for three days, and I don't remember any of the other teaching or anything else that happened. But he said this. He said, last week, or it was last month, you know, it was in a short period of time. I think he said last week. Last week, I walked into my secretary's office, and I sat down, and we were doing some business together. And he said, all of a sudden, he said, I had a sexual thought about her and began to think about her in an inappropriate way sexually. And he said, it just lasted a few seconds, he said, but I, I, I stopped that thought. And when we were done with our conversation, I got up and I went over to my associate's office and I sat down and I told him what I, what, what I just had thought about Jane. And I said, I need you to hold me accountable for this. <laughs> because this is completely inappropriate what I was thinking about her, and I need you to question me, and pray for me, and make sure that that thing doesn't grow in my life. I didn't remember anything else he said that week, because I thought, this guy is real. And walking with Jesus, this is what I got out of it, as a young man, you know, like 24. I'm like, walking with Jesus is about being real. Now, the struggle with that is, is that there are people who their whole life is one long struggle from the day they were born to the day they die. And every time you talk to them, they want to tell you about how bad life is. And sometimes we react to people that never have had a good day by trying to create a culture of denial. Am I m- making any sense at all? And, and what happens is is that we perpetuate this thing that isn't real. Is it's like, um, and, and people get afraid to tell anybody about their struggle, and there becomes no accountability because if you're if you have any kind of a struggle, like let's take Jack, because he used it publicly. You have a tr- struggle like Jack. You don't tell anybody about that because someone's going to remove you from ministry. Someone's going to think less of you. There's going to be some way that we punish you for being real. Now, I understand that there are times, you you know, there would be times when people are unrepentant and they do need to be removed from public ministry and there's all kinds of complicated situations. You know, there's not a policy manual you can follow to deal with every situation that happens in life. Okay, let's be real about that. But there's got to be a culture, we've got to develop a culture that's family-oriented where we understand that We we're living within in a culture that is energized with um, all kinds of um, Sinful stuff and it's not very hard to get caught up in it and without some kind of accountability It's really easy to let that thing grow into a big old tree in your garden before somebody finds out about it And you know if you keep that thing secret I don't know. It's like, (laughs) I won't say it. Anyway, um, sometimes we go through trials so that we can learn about God. In fact, James 1's great verse says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. How many of you are still working on that verse since you've been a Christian? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your, what? Faith produces endurance. How many you know trials don't produce great character? They just produce endurance. They just, they just test your faith and produce endurance for faith. Are you with me? Uh, one, one thing that I'm learning is that sometimes I go through trials so that I can get to know God in a deeper way. But the other times I go through trials so God can get to know me. Um... You might want a verse for that or something. Matthew chapter 7 says, verse 23, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaged wolves. You'll know them by their fruit. Grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit and bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit and vice versa. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How many of you know that there are times... When God takes us through things so that we can get to know Him. And there are times when we go through things so God can get to know us. I'm going to give you one more verse Deuteronomy 8 2. Let me just. Am I, am I boring, you guys? Or... Okay. Sometimes things that are really meaningful to me are. You're just in a different season. Um, Verse uh, 1, all the commandments that I'm commanding you, Moses writes through God, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. How many of you know that sometimes we go through trials and those trials are there so that we can get to know God and it tests our faith? Sometimes you go through trials and sometimes the way of God is we go through these trials and God is testing us because he wants to know what's in our heart. You go, well, God knows everything. Well, it apparently, the way that God finds out is he tests you to see what's in there. Are you with me? um tests are not negative from god's perspective when god says i'm going to test you you know i don't know if this kind of you know that kind of language for me like it creates that elementary school feeling when the teacher goes okay put away all your books we're going to have a test and i i still have like i still have anxiety from that i need sozoed from <laughs> so i was never a good test taker and sometimes we we see tests as something like you know, God's trying to find something wrong with me. You know, he's, he's looking to see if I've done something wrong. And, um, you know, sometimes the test is that God puts us in a garden with two trees. And he gives us a choice. Sometimes God makes wine at a wedding. When people who are already intoxicated and, you, and he gives you a choice. Let me let me um, see if it can get any better. First Samuel chapter twenty four. Do you turn there, please? Verse one. This is Saul chasing David. Um, you, you, just for maybe some of you that are new in the Lord, um, Saul was king, David was his right-hand man, but through um, jealousy and envy, King Saul decided he no longer liked his right-hand man, he was jealous of him, and he decided that the only way to take care of him, he had this bizarre thought that David was trying to become king and take his kingship. And there's a strange thing that actually happened. David was actually anointed king, in 1 Samuel, I think, chapter uh, 15, David was anointed king, even though Saul was king, because Saul had, uh, had done some stuff to, to sabotage his relationship with God. And God said to Saul, Okay, I'm taking you out of the kingship, and I'm going to give someone else the kingship. And Saul doesn't know it, but, David, but God anoints David in the wilderness, even though Saul's king. So here, here we go. Saul's king... Saul has become evil. Saul's become demonized. Probably he would be somebody that would be diagnosed as schizophrenic. He's he's definitely got fears that aren't really happening. And he's violent. He wants to kill David. and And then in the midst of all that, David gets anointed as king in the wilderness. Saul's still king. The prophet Samuel comes and anoints David king. Okay, you kind of have the background. Now Saul is chasing David through the wilderness. And David, who's this great warrior, um, you know, he, he's, let's pick up the story in verse 1. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, David is in the wilderness of wherever that is. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself or go to the bathroom. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand. Now, let me back up and let's slow down. I want you to see what's happening here. One of of David's men said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And so he said to his men, Far be it from me because the Lord, because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men. With these words, and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul rose and left the cave and went his way. Verse ten: David is now talking to Saul after he gets out of the cave, and, he, and David's in a safe place. He says, Behold, this day, behold, this day, your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said, Kill you! But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, and he goes on to talk like that. Now, turn to verse twenty, uh, chapter twenty-six. Now, uh, Saul repents. By the way, in chapter twenty-four, and he tells David, "You're a better man than I. I'm really sorry," and he repents before God, and he goes home, and he gets and he gets home, and he gets all stirred up again, gets in his crazy mind, and he starts pursuing David again. And so he's pursuing David, and they're going around this mountain. And David and his men, they're literally going around this mountain. And Saul's men are coming around the mountain, and David's men are coming around the mountain. And David's got somebody at the top, so he can see, they keep saying, here comes Saul. And literally, they're just going around this mountain, chasing each other. And finally, it's nightfall, and um, this is what happens. So David, um, verse 6, Then David said to whoever, the Hedekite and whoever this guy is, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me? to Saul in the camp. And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. And Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear of the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for you cannot stretch out your hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt. David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, and he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but now please take his spear at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away, but no one saw it or knew it, nor did anyone awake, listen to this, for they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Okay, now I want you to kind of get an idea what's going on here. First, he's in a cave. He has a complete ability to kill Saul. And, the, and one of his men remind him of a prophetic word that he got earlier, who knows when, earlier that week or earlier that year. But the word was, I'm going to give your enemy into your hand. I want you to go ahead and do whatever you want to do to him. Now, David's already anointed king, and this guy's insane. This insane man is chasing him through the wilderness. David's already anointed king, and he's got him in the cave, and he refuses to touch him. Now, now we're in the wilderness, and listen to this. It says, a deep sleep from the Lord. How many know that was the first place where people were actually slain in the Spirit? They were, they were slain in the spirit. They were asleep by the Lord. And Abishai and David go down, and Abishai repeats the prophecy again. This is that. This is the prophetic declaration. Your enemy has been given into your hand. And not only now do you not only have the prophetic word and the great setup, but now you have the people, the warriors, are all asleep by the Lord. Are you with me? I don't know if you are understanding what I'm getting at. There's two trees in the garden. (laughs) David has a choice right here. He has a prophetic anointing to be king. He's got a crazy king chasing him. He's got the word of the Lord that he can do to his enemy, whatever he wants to do. And now God's put all of his enemies to sleep. And he's got Abishai reminding him of the word of the Lord. And he's in the middle of this test. And he says, I will not touch God's anointed." How many of you know that sometimes when God prophesies to you, He's testing your heart rather than determining your destiny? Are you with me? Sometimes when the Lord is speaking to you, He's testing your heart rather than determining your destiny. A great example is Exodus 32. It's been used so many times, but it's where Moses and God are talking and the people are rebelling. And the Lord says to Moses, These people... The Lord says to Moses, these people whom you brought out of Egypt are rebellious and stiff-necked people, and I'm going to kill them, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And Moses says, "Ah, God, excuse me, these are your people whom you brought out of. You remember, like, I was walking along, I saw a bush, the bush said... I've seen the oppression of my people. I said, I don't want to go. You said, you're going anyway. Take your brother. These are, <laughs> these are your people whom you brought out of Egypt by your strong hand and by your mighty arm. And he has this conversation with God, and he says, listen, if you kill these people out here, what are the Egyptians going to say about you? I know what they're going to say, God. They're going to say that you brought these people out in the wilderness to kill them. That's what they're going to say about you. Now, Lord, remember the promise that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would take them into a promised land. Remember the promises that you made them. And the next verse says, and God changed his mind. I want to propose to you that God never did want to destroy his people. This is my opinion. I I want to propose to you that Moses just received the mantle to lead God's people. Because before there's a promotion, there's always a test. And sometimes the tests look like like you should choose door one. You should kill Saul. You should agree with God that the people are stubborn and rebellious and you should be the nation. Are you with me? Sometimes it looks like you should take another drink. You should eat from the second tree. And God provides the Means to give you a promotion by giving you options. <laughs> you didn't get that. God provides the options. Not always, of course, but He often provides options. And we think, well, God said it, so I'm going to kill Saul. And I got anointed king. And God goes, no, it's a bummer that you made that choice. Because you know why? Because you're going to be a good king. But if you would have made a choice to not do, not take the liberty and freedom that I gave you, you would have had a kingship that lasted into eternity. And my son would have been part of your lineage. But when David did not take the freedom, when he did not take the freedom that he was given, God said to him, you shall be on a throne. And Jesus, if you look at the lineage of Jesus, it comes through David and he says that he sits on the throne of David. Am I making any sense so far at all? Like, God is the God who doesn't control you. It's funny because then you come into church and we want to. Mm, That was a thought I had. It just came over me. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 20, is a story about Noah. And Noah planted a vineyard, and then Noah did a little bit too much wine testing, and he got drunk. You remember reading this story? <laughs> okay, well, sorry. You know, with the two examples that I'm using tonight, you would think I drink. I don't even drink. I think I will have one after this, though, just to... <laughs> Just to see what it's all about, a glass of wine or something. I've never drank before. I wish I could say I took a Nazarite vow, because that sounds spiritual. But actually, I got beat up by a stepfather who was an alcoholic, and that made me take a Nazarite vow. <laughs> it's not spiritual at all. I'm just not sure what will happen when I drink this stuff, so I just don't. Was I saying something? Yeah. Noah. Noah got drunk. I mean, he legitimately drank too much and got drunk. And his son, son, Ham, was it Ham? I think that's why they don't let you eat pork. <laughs> let me just see if I'm right about that. <laughs> yeah. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and he became drunk and uncovered himself inside this tent. And Ham, it was Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And it goes on like that. Do you know why Joshua, do you know why Joshua drove out the Canaanites? Because they were cursed. And you know why they were cursed? Because Ham told the truth about his father out of season. You guys are so quiet. Like, that was a really good point. Ham said, Look at Chad. <laughs> he's so, so stupid. He's drunk in there. And he's naked. And his brothers got a blanket and walked in backwards and covered him. And when Noah woke up, now, how many know Noah legitimately did something wrong? But his son, uncovering him, created a curse on him so that his, his children became slaves. And when Joshua came into the promised land, he drove all the Canaanites out of the land and made slaves out of the ones who stayed. All because Ham exposed his father's weaknesses in an untimely manner. What do you do with people when God gives you choices and you fail? They fail. You fail. Are you thinking about it? or You're like, I'm not going to get this one wrong. I mean, what do you do when people fail? What do you do when people... When God gives people choices to promote them, instead they eat the wrong tree. How about you? Have you ever ate from the wrong tree? I mean, Kathy has. (laughs) Nah, we know she's pretty smart. Look who she chose. Gosh, I'm so humble tonight. I just. I'm just trying to get you guys stirred up because you look so serious. It's, it's not the normal Bethel look. I guess we should have got you all drunk and then I'll preach this to you. Amen. <laughs> I read this story a couple of weeks ago, but it's still a good one. Luke 15. Why don't you, why don't you turn there? Luke 15. Start from verse 1, because the story really starts in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus, him is Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, now if you, if you highlight or underline your Bible, take a big old pen and circle the word So, so. So, he told them parables. Okay, why did he tell them parables? You're going to like, what's your point? I'll make it in just a minute if you'll just be quiet. (laughs) He told them parables because the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling because he hangs out with sinners and eats with them. Got that? So, he told them parables. Okay, you got that? So, he told them the first parable he told them was about a hundred sheep that a guy had and... Well, I'll just read to you. What, um, what, um, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and he says to his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found this, my sheep which was lost. I tell you in the same way. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. How many of you know that that tells us two things? It tells us that most of the body of Christ needs no repentance. Because you're saints and not sinners. But it also says, when you screw up, the Lord goes after you. That was a good word. But anyway, let's go on. Uh, what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she fa- has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, losing it, uh, and her neighbors, saying, "Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost." In the same way, I tell you, there is joy. There is joy in the in the presence of the angels over of God over one sinner who repents. Okay. Now, verse eleven. Do you understand? This is the same. He's still telling parables because the Pharisees are mad that he's talking and, and making friends with sinners. Okay, so the next parable. So parable three. And he said, A man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Give me my share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided the wealth between them. Now, how many of you know that a lot of people and some of your Bibles say the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son? In fact, my Bible is titled this the prodigal son. This is not a story about the prodigal son. Jesus titled his own parable. He called it the story of two sons, a man who had two sons, because the story is really more about the elder son than it is about the younger son. And I'll show you why in just a minute. Now, many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. There he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out as one of the citizens of that country, and and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. But when he came to his senses, everybody say, when he came to his senses, and you'll notice that most of your Bibles have a little, uh, um, a little signature thing that says, when he came to himself, and when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here of hunger? How many know when he came to himself, he went home? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up. And came to his father, but while he was still a long ways away. Everybody say, well he was still a long ways away. His father saw him. Come on. And felt compassion for him. And ran. And embraced him. And kissed him. And the son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has now come to life. He's lost. He's been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son, remember this parable is about two sons. Now his older son was in the field. And when he heard and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened cat because he has received him back safely and sound. And he became angry and was not willing to go in with his father. And his father came out and began, to, began pleading with him. And he answered and said to his father, look. So many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours, yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, when this son of yours, this son of yours, everybody say, this son of yours, came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But he, but we have to celebrate and rejoice For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has now been found. What's the point of the parable? Remember the parable began with both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. So he told them parables. Now, who is the son, the younger son in the parable? It's the tax collectors and it's the sinners that Jesus is hanging out with that the Pharisees are grumbling with about. True? Who is the father in the parable? It's God, it's Jesus who is hanging out with the sinners that they're mad about. In the parable, who is the older son? The Pharisees. The Pharisees are the older son. And what does the older son want to do? He wants to punish him. Why? Because he says, I've been doing all the work. while he's been playing. What does the father want to do? Have a party. (laughs) What does the older brother not want to do? Have a party. Maybe that's why the younger brother left. What do the Pharisees want to do? They want to work. They want to look religious. They want to do anything besides have fun. What's Jesus doing? Going to parties, making wine. (laughs) And he's got a reputation for it. And so Jesus tells them a story where the father creates a party, have some fun. Who's the older brother? The Pharisees. They don't want to come to the party. What do they want? They want the brother... They want. In the fact, they don't even call him their brother. They call him your son. How many of you know that a Pharisee spirit breaks relationship with people when they fail, and no longer wants to re- be related to them? Are you with me? And they want to make sure they get punished for what they're doing. But what does the father do? The father runs out into the field. Now, just think about this. Why is the father running out in the field? This is my opinion. The Bible's silent on it. I think the father runs out in the field, in my opinion, because when the son starts getting close to the father's house, if the son is anything like me when i failed, I start thinking of all the things the father might say to me. He might reject me. He might start yelling and screaming at me. He might. I'm thinking of all the things the father's going to do to me when he sees me with no money. How am I going to tell the father that I've spent all my money and I've wasted on whores? And what am I going to say to my father? What is my father going to say when I let him know that not only my home, but I have no money and I have nothing, I have nothing left. And how many of you know that the, father has, the father's smart? The father knows that the boy may get close to the house and turn around, so what does he do? He runs out into the field, He doesn't just run out empty handed though. How many know when the young man says, give me my inheritance, the father's smart. He doesn't give him his inheritance. He just gives him money. And when the boy comes home, he gives him his inheritance, his robe. He gives him his identity back, his ring. He gives him his authority back and the sandals. He restores his purity. Come on. The father is ready to restore his purity as soon as he sees him heading for home. But the older brother wants the younger brother to pay. He's been working in the field. I've been working. I've been doing everything. He ain't even giving me a goat. What he doesn't realize is that the, the young, older brother doesn't realize is he owns a farm. The father says, everything I have is yours. He lost sight out of jealousy and envy and strife and contention that he has more than the younger brother. But he wants the younger brother to pay. And he doesn't want a party when the younger brother comes home. It's a religious spirit. Do you get this? There's a religious spirit that is alive in the church. I'm not saying people don't need to be confronted. Come on. Jesus was the most confronted person in the Bible. You couldn't do anything without Jesus figuring out. I imagine that being a disciple wasn't the easiest thing to do when Jesus can read your mind. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And knowing their thoughts, He said. I mean, you can't even think it. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I'm like, hey, I just thunk it, all right? I didn't do anything wrong. And he's constantly going, you know, he's 30 yards from him, and they're, they're arguing. You know they're arguing quietly. I mean, the Bible doesn't say that, but they're not letting Jesus know they're arguing over who's the greatest. But Jesus knows because he just knows. And he's like, hey, what are you guys arguing about? Oh, nothing. They didn't bring bread. They're arguing about who's responsible for that. Well, Peter, you know, you should have brought the bread. It was your turn. Oh, come on, John. You laid on his breast. You should have remembered that. Thomas, I doubt it, you know. Well, we had a lot more bread, but Judas sold it for a profit. And then Jesus says, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're like, oh, crap. He figured out we didn't bring bread. We're all in trouble now. And then he says this, how long do I have to be with you? <laughs> um, I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you're with Jesus. I mean, you know, you talk about confrontation. He is very, con- he's not passive. He goes to a Pharisee's house. Now, how many of you know, it takes a lot of courage for the Pharisees to, a Pharisee to invite Jesus over for dinner. You've got to know that he just ostracized himself from the other Pharisees. Cause it didn't say that he invited Jesus to his house to test him, like it does in many other places when the Pharisees are talking to him. You kinda you got a feeling that this Pharisee's trying to make a little peace with Jesus. You know, it's like, okay, well maybe the guy's right. You know, let's have him over for dinner. Do you know what I'm saying? Because all the Pharisees are trying to kill him. So, you know, if everyone's if all the Pharisees are trying to kill Jesus and you one Pharisee, you have Jesus over for dinner. I don't know, it's kind of a peace offering. And Jesus is sitting down at dinner and he says, you know, you Pharisees, you are full of dead man's bones. Whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. Um, Pass the bacon. I mean, this is Jesus out of Pharisee's house who's probably taken a pretty big risk to have Jesus over. And the attorney's sitting next to him. And the attorney says, you know, you you kind of offend us, too. He goes, you? (laughs) You should be offended. You make rules nobody can keep. You keep people out of the kingdom, and you won't enter in yourself. A little bit more corn, please. (laughs) And then a woman comes in, who's a known prostitute in town, comes into a totally not... She's not invited. She comes in. Jesus already got struggle with these guys. And she starts wiping her feet, his feet, with her tears. And no one's gonna say anything. But if Jesus says, and knowing their thoughts. <laughs> Doesn't it? And knowing their thoughts, he says to Peter, hey Peter, who let me ask you a question. One guy owed a bunch of money, another guy owed a little bit, and, and, and they both got forgiven. Who loves more? Oh, Lord, I guess it was the one who got forgiven the most. Sounds reasonable to me. Well, you know what? I came in here, and, 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 you, and you didn't clean my feet. You gave me nothing for my feet. And she hasn't stopped wiping my feet with her tears. She'll be forgiven a lot in the kingdom. Oh, yeah, Lord, that's what I was thinking. (laughs) Now, sure you were. Did you notice, do you know that two times it's recorded twice, two different women? Two different women in a culture where men and women were not allowed to talk to each other. It's recorded that twice women came in and wept at his feet and wiped his feet with her tears, or with ointment. Twice. If it's recorded twice, I bet it happened more often. The only reason I say that is because John said that if all the works that Jesus did were written down, the the, the earth could not contain them. I would imagine, you know, there's only 27 recorded miracles in the, bio, in the Gospels. Only 27 individual recorded miracles. But how many know Jesus healed the multitudes? I have a sense that if it happened twice, if prostitutes and and, and women of that kind of nature, if, they, if, they, if it's recorded twice that they came in and, and broke into Pharisees' houses and broke into dinner meetings and washed Jesus' feet, I have a feeling that it happened more than that. And can you imagine you're eating dinner and, like, you know, the town, you know what I mean? She's in your house, you're having a dinner party with all these important people. I mean, I'd be like, I wonder what the people are thinking. I can tell you what they're thinking. They're thinking, this guy hangs out with sinners and prostitutes and and winos and tax collectors. That's what they're thinking. And not only that, but he gets a reputation for it. It must have been pretty often. Am I making any sense tonight? The people who are sinners are hanging out with a perfect guy. Which, to me, you know, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, but if there's an area of my life that's, that I'm really poor at, I don't like to hang around with people who are good at it. You know, if, you, if, you like, if, if, you, if you're not wise with your money and you use it all up and you're, and you're hanging out with your friend who's got a lot of money, you go, man, you know what, times are really tough. And he's like, no, not for us. You know, I invested and we're giving to the kingdom and we just bought this new house. You just want to say, shut up. You know what I mean? Man, we're really struggling to put our kids through school. It's like, oh, well, I have three kids in college, and we've saved for them for many years, and we planned from the time they were born. You're like, get over yourself. How many of you know that when you're weak in some area, you don't usually want to hang around with someone who's successful because then it reminds you how weak you are. Here's sinners, and what are they doing? They're inviting Jesus to their parties. They're hanging out with him. How many know that the love of God overcame the fear of his purity? Are you following me? This is really the true word. Has it ever occurred to you that they left the Song of Solomon in the Bible? (laughs) I'm saying... Do you, do you understand the way some people judge, like, let's say, revivalists? You know, they say, like, like, I don't know who's a good example. Like, William Branham didn't finish too good. I mean, according I mean, I wasn't there, but according to some historians. And so if you mention William Branham, it's almost like you have to mention that he's screwed up at the end, just so people will know that you don't agree with the end of his life. Do you know that Solomon didn't finish very well? And God still left his book in the Bible? How many of you have ever read it? Okay, when you read it, do you remind yourself that he didn't end well? Okay, that wasn't a good example. How about this? God puts Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Do you know that the book of Ecclesiastes was never written to be true? Here's one of the statements in Ecclesiastes. Money is the answer to all things. That's not true. Do you know when, some of you are like, it is true in my case. (laughs) You don't understand, if I had about a 5,000 bucks right now, I would be all right. Do you know that Ecclesiastes was never written to be true? It was written to show you what happens when the wisest man in the world loses relationship with God. Because almost every one of his thoughts ends with this statement. It's all vanity. In other words, when the wisest man in the world loses relationship with God, he's still wise, but his life has no more purpose because he's lost the one who purposed it. Do you know that Solomon did not leave an inheritance to his father and David did? Even though Solomon wrote, a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but Ecclesiastes says, what if I leave all that I've done to my son and he's a fool? So he left him nothing. Do you read Ecclesiastes? Bad people. You're reading the book that was written by a man after he fell out of relationship with God. And God put it in there so you'd see the contrast between the book of Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and the book of Ecclesiastes. What happens when a wise man loses relationship with God? Some of the things he says are true, but they don't have any purpose. How many of you know that much of Ecclesiastes is true? But you still... but it, but Solomon read saw life through vain purposeless perspectives and that part of ecclesiastes is not true are you are you getting the point at all see just because somebody Falls doesn't mean that what they did wasn't awesome. And just because somebody's messed up doesn't mean God doesn't still use them. I mean, have you ever read the story of Samson? I mean that dude was he never had a good day. You know, at least Solomon had some good years. I mean, Samson was messed up from the day he got started. I mean, his like, get me that woman. I need her. Oh, how many of you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> How many know that the, that, that the gift of God doesn't mean you have character, because the word "gift" is, doesn't mean you, it's an award. How many know that the gifts of the spirit are not awards? You don't get them because you're amazing. you get them because you ask for them. I know a lot of Bozos who ask for gifts and God gives them to them. And some people are like, they must have an amazing life with God because they can heal the sick and do miracles. I was like, no. It just means they ask for them. Yeah. Well, if I was God, I wouldn't give them to Him. Well, you're not. Are you following me? It's like gifts and character are not the same thing. Galatians... 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. How many know the fruit of the Spirit is a sign that you have a relationship with God? But the gifts of the Spirit are just a sign that you ask for gifts and the Holy Spirit flows through you. They're not a sign. that. But listen, just because because you have poor character, (laughs) just because. Oh, don't worry about that. Just poor character. Doesn't mean that the things that God did through you are not him. This Lakeland revival is an amazing example to me. I got on the internet the other day. I don't Google anything about, honestly, except for Amazon to see how my book's doing. And. <laughs> Too much information. See if I've sold more than Bill. My well, only go in life to have one day when I sell more than he did. I go. I I just googled Todd Bentley, and it's like there's this pages and pages of like the Lakeland revivals is a fraud because Todd's having a, a struggle. And I, I'm like, what? These guys like, have you read the Bible? I mean, how about David? I listen. I'm not validating t- someone's character. No, no, no. That you know what? I'm just like, let's leave Todd out of it. If you screw up, someone needs to confront you and disciple you through it. And if you won't go through it, you're not repentant, then you've got a big problem with the church. It's just the way it goes. You know? But the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. You're gonna, you, you may leave the church and still be doing miracles. They don't follow people just because they have a big gift. Well, it must be from the devil because their character is terrible. Not necessarily. I mean, David, you know, commits adultery, kills a guy, you know, minor issues. And God goes, God, even Jesus, years later, has the audacity to say, he's a man after my heart. He associates with David. After he murders a guy, commits adultery, the little boy is dead at birth because of his sin, and, and Jesus says, he's a man after my heart. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Jesus, are you saying that you are right with him committing adultery and killing Uriah? you know what Uriah means? God is my fire. Do you know... Do, you, Jesus, are you saying that you said David is the man after your heart? You, you, just, you just anointed David as a man who's your friend. Are you saying that him killing Uriah and him committing adultery, that's okay with you? How many know that God gave you a brain? Just go like this. You hear it working, those wheels in there turning? If you don't, get them going. What I'm getting at is this. Jesus doesn't have any problem acknowledging that David had a heart after him, even though he knows that you know that he's a screw-up. What I'm getting at is that God expects you to use your brain and he expects you to know that he is not alright with him killing Uriah, that he's not alright with him committing adultery with Bathsheba, he's not alright with him numbering the people, he's not alright with these bad decisions he made, but overall, he's a man after his heart. And you just have to be smart enough to know that even though Jesus made a, a flattering statement, uh, flattering is the wrong word, a complimentary statement about David, that it doesn't mean that he loves everything that David's ever done. Are you with me? And just because somebody does something awesome doesn't mean they have a life with God. So it can go both ways you know King Saul, God removed the mantle from King Saul. And he, listen, King Saul goes out to battle. He he does totally what God told him not to do. But listen to this. This is crazy. This is nuts. He wins the battle. So the prophet comes to him and says, listen, Saul, you didn't do, you know, it's a long story. The short story is, he says, you screwed up. You didn't do what God told you to do. He goes, yes, I did. He goes, no, I didn't. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, he didn't. Finally, he goes, no, I didn't. So that's right. So God gives him another chance. Sends him out again. He does the same thing again. The same thing again. He does exactly what God tells him not to do. Leaves King Agag alive. Keeps some of the sheep. Da da da. You know the story, right? And the prophet comes to him again. And the prophet goes, Saul, Saul, what the heck are you doing? That's that's a, that's a living Bible on steroids. What are you doing? I've done what the Lord told me to do. I've come out. I've won the battle. Now get this. He wins the battle again. Follow me. There's only two people who know that King Saul is a loser. God and a prophet. You, you didn't even get that. Do you understand? By man's standards, the, the king is the golden boy. He has won two major battles against enemies that they have fought for years. And he goes out and he wins both battles. And God says, you are a loser in both battles. What I'm getting at is, look, from the outside, it looks like he's got good fruit. Are you with me? He's got good fruit. God still lets him win the battle. The horses prepare prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the... The Lord wins the battles for him, even though he did what God told him not to do. And how many of you know that he failed in both situations, and yet from the outside, it looked like he was a winner? See, sometimes people have bad things going on in their life, like Rahab, and God goes, I love her, she's got a great heart. You're like, okay, God, I don't get it. Are you saying prostitution's okay? And God's like, turn your brain on, boy. You know what I'm getting at. God looks through their darkness and calls them something wonderful, and you have to get past the fact that they're not wonderful. And you're like, is God living in denial, or what's going on here? But God can look through people's garbage and go, I understand that person. I see Rahab. I know she's a prostitute. I understand all that. But you know what? She's going to be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. So she's fine. Just, just, she has faith too. Uh-huh. By faith, Rahab. Yeah. By faith, she was... Sleep- what kind of <laughs> You know, in our day, when people say... <laughs> You go, what do you do for a living? They go, I'm living by faith. Hopefully they're not doing what Rahab's doing. How many of you just followed that one right up? And God said she had faith. By faith, Rahab hid the spies. Well, I mean, she only had two options, hide them or sleep with them. No, I mean, that's, the, that's what she's doing for a living. Just be real. That's what she's doing for a living. She hides the spies. Woo hoo, woo hoo. Look at the rest of her life. And God goes, I like her. She's got a good heart. He's not validating that her lifestyle's all right. Or, am I making any sense to you? He's not validating that. God just has this way of looking into people's heart and go, you know what, you've succeeded everywhere, but here's a bad, here's a bad problem with you. you. You failed everywhere, but I really like you. There's something good in you. How many of you see that God doesn't look at man the way we look at men? And God, you know, you know what I love about the Bible? That God puts all their problems in the Bible. If I was trying to convince you that I was God and I make changes in people's life and when people come into relationship with me that they really are blessed, I would leave out a lot of stories. <laughs> How many of you know what I'm talking about? If I was if I wrote the Bible to make you believe that I, God, come into someone's relation come into relationship with somebody and I make all things well, I would leave out a whole bunch of the print. You can't tell, you know what, CNN would not, they would, they would have nothing on God because God tells. <laughs> they go, hey, come down here, one of my guys really screwed up. I mean, he puts it in his book, like, you know, he tells on his own people. Do you know what I'm getting at? Do you know that Peter, I wrote this down, hang on. Just a second. I'm all over the place if you haven't noticed. Just... That's Noah got drunk. That's on it. Well, it's in here somewhere. I hate that. As soon as I go, there it is. It's the first scripture. Mark sixteen seven. Jesus sends the Mary, uh, Mary just seen Jesus at the tomb, and Jesus says, Go tell my disciples and Peter I'm alive. Do you know why she had to say, and Peter? Because he wasn't considered a disciple. You know why? Because he denied Christ. How many of you know two people denied Christ? Judas denied Christ, and Peter denied Christ. That was such a good point, really. I thought there was going to be some kind of like, woo, ah, woo. Oh, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Guys are so spontaneous. It just. There was a time when Peter was not considered a disciple by the rest of the disciples and by the, by the core group that hung around Jesus. So when Jesus told Mary to tell people that he was alive and he wanted the disciples to know first, he had to tell her to include Peter because she wouldn't have told Peter because all the disciples had done what the religious leaders had taught them to do and that is cut off somebody when they screw up. Don't identify with Him. That's a good word right there. Okay. I'm almost done. I've just got three pages left. Galatians 6 says, You who are spiritual... Restore the one who's fallen in the spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, lest you be te- tempted. Be careful when you start running around talking about other people's stuff. I'm not saying don't confront them, because he says confront them in the spirit of gentleness, but be careful when you run around talking about other people's stuff as you start getting that haughty spirit on you like you know i would have never done that i'm like i would be careful about that because you might find out that that arrogant thing comes on you and that won't be good for you when jesus met the woman at the well he told her that the father's looking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth it's interesting the word truth there is not rhema or logos The word truth there means nothing hidden. I want to propose that God wants a people who have nothing hidden. He wants us to go back to the garden and get naked. Um, Not literally. Metaphorically. He wants us to go back to the garden where God can see us. Where we can see God. And it says they were naked. Get this. They were naked and they were not ashamed. Let me say it one more time. They were naked and they were not ashamed. There was nothing hidden, but they didn't live in shame. You know why? Because God doesn't do punishment. He does discipline, but He doesn't do punishment. They were naked, and they were unashamed. I think half our people left while I'm preaching. (laughs) Whatever. Why don't you stand and let's just pray? Maybe I should preach the other word. It was pretty good. Um, This is about discipling nations, it was a lot more encouraging. Um, Let me just pray for you. I can't do that, actually. Let me just pray for us. There, that feels right. Uh, How many of you need an attitude adjustment? I mean, like you need one right now. Like as I'm preaching, you're like, oh, that, that's me. You know, when, about two weeks ago, when I was reading the parable, uh, Luke 15, the story of two sons. I'm reading that parable, and I'm like, I, I know this sounds wrong, but I'm so identifying with the older brother. I'm like, if my younger brother came home in that exact situation, I definitely would not be running to a party. I'd be definitely wanting to make that guy do some time. Uh, I felt like the Lord said, I'm raising up a new epic season of fathers. Not fathers who ignore their son's sin, but fathers who invite them into their purpose and destiny. After they failed. How many know the younger son pretty much knows he messed up? Pretty much figured it out already. I mean, he got what's worse than a spanking. Hmm. Father, I pray that you'd make us a family. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you said nothing's impossible. I pray that you'd make us a family. A family that deals with their issues, a family who covers when people have failed, but a family who addresses the issues nevertheless. A family that restores in the spirit of gentleness, a family who, who realizes that you give us choices and those choices are often tests for promotion.